0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of How Was It Really?, the podcast from Sydney University History Department, where we pull history apart to see how it works. My name is Nick Eckstein. I'm a historian in the History Department at Sydney University. My co-host and fellow poser of Curly Questions is Sophie Loy Wilson, who by sheer coincidence is also a historian in the History Department at Sydney. How are you, Sophie? I'm well, Nick. One of the things that made us want to do this podcast in the first place was the amazing variety of research that happens in the History Department at Sydney and the extraordinary ways that our colleagues recover the past. If, for example, if I just give an off-the-cuff list, it'll give people listening an idea of that range. Our colleagues at Sydney include internationally recognised experts in fields as diverse as the history of colonial America and Republican China, gender and the memorialization of warfare, Soviet Russia and the history of print, Australian migration, renaissance Italy.
1: We have historians of genocide, the Atlantic world, Torres Strait culture, psychiatry and madness, nationalism, transnationalism.
0: And we're not even near being halfway through. But there's another important reason we wanted to do this podcast. It's not just about the number of different subjects, is it?
1: there is another important reason. We see this as an exciting way to talk directly to our own students, to senior secondary history students and their teachers, and to anyone else who wants to listen about what exactly it is that academic historians do. And in order to do that, the two of us are going to talk to a different historian every week asking how she or he answers that question, how it really was, and what it was that made them want to find out in the first place.
0: So in coming programs, there are going to be a lot of guests. They will include the historians we've mentioned, but we will also talk to our postgraduate researchers, brilliant young scholars, who are doing some of the most exciting work that is happening in our department. Every program will be different. We'll talk about the detective work that they do as practicing historians, but we will also get them to tell us where they were and what they were doing when the history bug bit them and why they never recovered. Why they chose to research and write about, say, indigenous history, rather than the history of food or psychiatry. So who's our first cap off the rank then? It's me, Yeah, I knew that, but I wanted you to be the one to say it, so it was a rhetorical question. Are you ready to go? Yes. Okay, so if I ask you why are you here, by which I mean why are you sitting here as a historian in this department in the biggest possible sense, how did that happen? Why are you a historian? And does the reason have something to do with what you study and the way you work?
1: So I'd like to bring you to Beijing uh, 1995. An American spy plane has been shot down over China, infuriating um, Chinese people. Protests are rife on the street. I'm 15, and I think it's very glamorous to go out and join these protesters. But of course, I'm a Westerner. I might be mistaken for an American. So I don a T-shirt with a koala bear hugging a panda bear, kindly um, supplied to me by the Australian Embassy. Which is the
0: universal passport to success. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Um, And we'll get you in anywhere. And I ventured out into the crowd, sort of assuming that my youth and earnestness would endear me to the protesters. Very quickly, protesters informed me that in their opinion, there was no difference between the US and Australia. They were one and the same place. They were the West, Australia was allies of the West. So my assumptions about the way I'd be received in this crowd were kind of thrown in my face. And immediately I was positioned geopolitically my national background mattered, Um, my association with the West mattered and that was more important than um, any of my good intentions. So fast forward to 2005, I'm attending lectures at the um, University of Sydney in this department and that's where I got the broader context about the history of Western imperialism in China that gave me some of the answers that I was posing on that day.
0: So from a quite confronting experience when you're just 15, you end up years later delving into perhaps some of the explanations of what happened and that's been a springboard for your further career.
1: It definitely stayed with me, yes.
0: There's a, a lovely sort of resonance actually with what we're going to talk about because the subject of our discussion today is an article that you've written recently which will be available on the podcast website for anybody who wants to read it, which is about Chinese arrivals in colonial Sydney in the 1850s, so a kind of mass example in the opposite direction from your own individual experience so many years later. That's right. So Sophie, certainly there are new facts that are being discovered as part of your inquiry, but it's not just about finding new material, you're actually looking at different things from those scrutinised by other historians who studied this field. Can you tell me how the inquiry is different?
1: So mainstream historians tend to concentrate on anti-Chinese feeling, Mm. So we're so um, aware of what happened in the gold rushes, agitation against the Chinese, but we're less aware of two things. We're less aware of um, how Chinese migrants reacted to these agitations, what they thought themselves. Um, And we're also unaware of the quite large experiments in Asian indentured labour that occurred in Australia. Of course, we know about convict labor. We know less about the large number of quote-unquote coolie laborers that came into the country from China.
0: And the things I had in common actually with early European settlers.
1: Absolutely. So more than you think, uh, European settlers had a sense of solidarity with some of these Asian
0: indentured laborers. Yeah. So you really are telling a story that we haven't heard before. I could say there's even more than that. In fact, you're doing something more. One of the several things that you're doing is talking about people's actual memories. So we can talk about remembering and the things that they remember. In a second sense, you're talking about the phenomenon of historical memory itself. Now, I'd like to come back to that idea towards the end. But for the moment, tell me about the first kind of memory, the actual kinds of things that you talk about and which people remember.
1: So Sydney in the 1850s, young uh, democracy in New South Wales, a number of colonists in Sydney, ex-convicts, for example, they remember these experiments in coolly indentured labor. They remember that the big pastoralists, at the big end of town uh, brought in often on ex-slave ships, uh, men from China to be indentured laborers, what they would argue were, were slave laborers into the colony. So these young kind of Australian, Uh, uh, settlers remember these indentured labour schemes. There's also rather sharp memories, of course, of convict labour. This is a population of ex-convicts, children of of convicts, Um, and those memories are are run deep and the mark of that time runs deep. So these are a troubling combination for people, the memories of uh, Cooley labour and the memories of convict labour.
0: So we're talking about an early European settler society whose inhabitants remember how their own forebears were indentured labour, indeed, and working virtually in slave conditions. They also know about Chinese people who were in similar situations. So there's a kind of a a conflicted, troubling background to the story you have to tell. And I suppose you could say the, the rubber really hits the road with the seizure of the Chinese miners' gold from the ships on which they are about to sail out from home for home um, out of Sydney Harbour. So maybe you should tell us that story at this point. What happens as they think they're about to leave?
1: So the night of 16th October, 1857, customs officials with soldiers board these two ships in Sydney Harbour. Over 400 Chinese men are on board and they seize a huge amount of money from these men. So £10,000 worth of gold, the equivalent of around two million US dollars today in in, in today's money. Um, What's important is the way they do this. So they go through um, uh, each man's gold. Um, Men are carrying gold in pouches around their waist. And you've got to remember the gold isn't necessarily in a uniform form. There's gold nuggets, there's gold teeth, there's dust, there's rings. The customs official sees it all.
0: And do they have an excuse for doing this? Is it just an act of theft or do they have some pretext?
1: (laughs) And this is where it gets very controversial. So a law had been introduced only months before Um, allowing the seizure of gold that wasn't in sovereign form. So you were meant to go to the mint and have all your gold melted down at this new mint um, in Macquarie Street in Sydney and made into sovereigns if you wanted to leave uh, the country. But this particular law was not widely known and it was clear that many of the Chinese weren't um, aware of it. So we have one Chinese man on record, Sung Ho, saying that he'd never heard of this new duty tax on gold.
0: And his testimony is believable on that point, I take it.
1: It's quite convincing. Um, And he argues that it was never translated into Chinese. It was never circulated around the gold fields.
0: Right. So we can perhaps uh, take as read the testimony of the Chinese that this is something new to them. And as far as they're concerned, they're going home, taking their legally mined gold back for the purposes that they were always going to hope to find it, which is to take it back for their families and so on. Absolutely. Uh, There's also the other thing that you mentioned, which is with the officials. Uh, In fact, the official who alerts the authorities to the fact this gold is about to sail out of the harbour gets a big stake, doesn't he? He gets about a third of the take. This man is called Lockyer. So at this point in the story, it's looking almost like a classic shakedown by one much more powerful group than another. Um, But it doesn't quite go the way you think it's going to go. You might imagine the Chinese lose their gold. The European settlers take it. End of story. But there are some twists. And one of the most extraordinary, uh, as far as I was concerned, is that there is some sympathy for the Chinese in the general population. And the Chinese turned out to be surprisingly agile and adept in their response, don't they?
1: Absolutely. So I think the customs officials who seized the gold were pretty much sure they were home and hosed. They loaded the gold onto big ships. Um, They deposited it at first at Kirribilli House, the seat of our current prime minister in Sydney, and then um, the customs house at Circular Quay. They did not expect what happened next, which was the Chinese used the legal system to fight this situation. So they immediately wrote a petition using a lawyer called John Black to call for the return of their gold. And these petitions are published in the press in New South Wales, and create a surprising amount of public support for the rights of the Chinese miners.
0: So let me break in there. This is published, and the word of this is spread through the usual means. And the public, to some extent, takes the Chinese people's side
1: unexpected right
0: yeah
1: Um, a number of letters to the editor testify to this actually and they write in and they emphasize the unfairness of the seizure so I think what's important here is this is in the context of a lot of self-made men men who feel that you know their fair labor has got them their wealth and here you have a group of men whose labor on the goldfields has you know um, allowed them to accumulate wealth not just wealth for themselves by the way often these men were carrying Uh, Gold up to 43 other men, uh, Chinese miners. Remember, tickets are expensive back to China. So it's just efficient to carry the money back for others as well. So to have that gold seized in the way that it was by force on a ship late on Sunday night um, by customs, officials and soldiers, that didn't sit well with people at all. You are listening to
0: How Was It Really? So what starts off as a story between two different racial groups uh, is in your article inserted into a discourse about a larger campaign of resistance by Chinese miners. Uh, It doesn't just stop in Sydney. Things like this are going on in Victoria. And as you observe, one of the things that it reminds you instantly of is the kind of protests by European miners at the Eureka Stockade. So at this point, I wonder if I'm right in understanding that you are inserting this incident with the Chinese and the theft of their gold into the larger history of labour relations and class struggle in Australia. Would I be right in assuming that?
1: Yes, well, well put, Nick, I, I really like that. Um, so what I find so kind of interesting about this is the language in the petitions themselves, the language of rights, of British rights. So the, the Chinese miners using the same language that gold miners had used about tax, unfair taxation on the gold fields. This would have rung so familiar uh, to many people when they read um, the petitions themselves. Um, The government itself didn't quite know what to do because one of the implications um, of the press coverage of this incident was corruption. It looked like mismanagement on the part of the government. So instead of inspiring predictable kind of anti-Chinese feeling, Press coverage turns instead after these petitions to um, mismanagement and poor governance on the part. So a government stuff-up. A government stuff-up.
0: Embarrassing. Absolutely. And that explains a little bit more perhaps or gives you some more context for understanding why the press, again surprisingly, is sympathetic. So there's a paper called The Evening News. Mm. says that it's understandable that the Chinese are ignorant of the law. Mm. Um, They're left with, I think... um,
1: I find this particular article fascinating. So yes, the Evening News comes out and says, you know, of course they were ignorant of the law. How are they supposed to know about it? Which we think about, it, it's a failure of government. The government's meant to communicate its laws if it expects people to abide by them. And the Evening News draws attention to the poverty of the Chinese. So all of a sudden they had gone from rags to riches and riches to rags again. Like literally a lot of these Chinese were on the street, destitute, impoverished. In fact, um, the Sydney Morning Herald, along with the Evening News, calls for government support for these destitute miners and this ends up with a formal investigation.
0: And there's an organised Chinese response during the inquiry. So you talk about a nine-month investigation and the authorities take testimony from the Chinese and they actually do this seriously. There are interpreters for the Chinese and um, what's the overall effect of the investigation?
1: a wonderful unexpected archive of Chinese life. So with this investigation um, and with the interpreters, we actually get the testimony of Chinese miners on the record, which is so rare in Australian history. We know a lot about what people thought about the Chinese, but less about Chinese miners' own experience. So um, for once
0: we're not hearing settlers talking about Chinese, we're hearing their voices mediated through these sources.
1: Absolutely. Now, of course, this is a, a special commission, and you know, it's an inquiry, and of course, there's translators. But I still think what is in that commission is so valuable, because we get life in Chinese villages the men come from. The men talk about their obligations in the village. They can't show their face in that village. If they return with no goal, they talk about their neighbours, their wives. Um, they mention life on the gold field, the hardships that they experienced, the friendships they forged, the alliances they forged. Um, and they really outline the impact of this gold seizure on the lives of the, their families back in China.
0: So this has been mediated across the decades and now almost a century and a half, or is it more? Uh, it is more to us. But there is, this is there's the suggestion also that this investigation which is by a select committee becomes a kind of public theater so the population at large is hearing these sorts of details too.
1: Absolutely and because you know the press is sitting there they've become interested this has become a scandal by this stage it's reported it's read and in an odd way it humanizes these Chinese that traditionally in our history have been the subject of such hatred and vitriol
0: But it doesn't just go one way either. So, we've been saying the press is surprisingly sympathetic. The populace feels it's got a number of things in common with these Chinese uh, miners. But as always, things are complex. And in fact, there are lots of competing and overlapping interests and opinions, aren't there?
1: Yes. Um, And I think this is where the figure of the coolie comes in in really interesting ways. So, what is the Select Committee to do to counter this sympathy for the Chinese miners? Well, one of the things that it tries to do is trigger problematic memories among the population of Asian indentured labor. So the specter of slavery, of course, this is the 1850s is hanging heavy everywhere. Uh, And the committee argues that perhaps these Chinese miners weren't acting on their own free will. They were hired by rich men in China and, in fact, owed money to these rich men. Uh, so weren't, in fact, like your average gold miner at all, but were really Chinese coolies and were part of a kind of conspiracy to reintroduce the coolie trade uh, into
0: the colony. And what happens when you utter the word coolie in this period? What does it do in the public imagination?
1: It reminds them of the word convict uh, ah. in a big way, um, of course. So. In some ways, um, the idea of coolie is one step lower than convict. It's it's a, a shameful word, um, a problematic word, and it brings back a dark a dark past time. It brings the colony back to a time it's supposed to have moved on from, of course. Um, so, unexpectedly, though, what it also does is it creates a solidarity between are those descended from convicts or those that are ex-convicts and the men themselves. So where it's supposed to demonise these people, it actually creates cultural bridges between the population uh, and
0: these people. So you've got a select committee which is playing on familiar tropes in order to excite... um, I suppose you could say this is race-baiting, they're trying to excite hostility. And I suppose to some degree that works, but it also has the twin effect of creating sympathy um, the Select Committee does, as we are saying, use racial stereotypes. Um, can you give some examples of how those stereotypes spread themselves throughout the society?
1: Absolutely. So it starts quite early on in the committee hearing where you have um, some of the customs officials referring back to the Opium Wars. Some of these men had actually fought in the Opium Wars, these officials, and they talk about the Chinese as sulky and recalcitrant, almost in child childlike, childlike language. So it starts then, but then it also continues with this idea of the coolie. And the way that the selectivity tries to deploy this racial stereotype um, is by taking away the free will of the Chinese, that they weren't acting on their own accord, they were servile, they weren't really capable of thinking for themselves, that there was a bigger hand at play here, um, a puppeteer if you like, managing the behaviour of these Chinese men. Um, It's important to remember that the majority of the men on the committee they are land-owning men. These are not working-class men. These are men that themselves had employed indentured labourers. One of them, William William Maclay from Yass, had himself been part of these indentured um, labourer experiments in Chinese labour. And so this idea uh, of the coolie was often used against these men actually in popular elections. This idea that they had employed coolie labour. Uh, in the colony was a sort of black mark against them. So in elections at the time, it was quite common to have no coolie placards put up in pubs, or there were no coolie rallies, for example. Um, And it was really a working class statement about labor rights.
0: So it's not just anti-Chinese, though it is that, it's also anti-employer, anti-squatter. It's a really charged term, and in several very, very um, uh, difficult kinds of ways that point in different directions. Absolutely. The people who are on the receiving end of all of these stereotypes, the Chinese themselves, they don't passively cop those kinds of labels, do they? They contest them. And we've already talked about how they use the language of democracy. Um, Can you say a little bit more about how they contest those sorts of accusations?
1: I find this really interesting. So what the Chinese miners do is they bring it back to relationships and family. they talk a lot about, about about their obligations to their wives um, or to their fellow gold miners. They talk about the fact that they are holding gold in trust um, for other people. Uh, and they talk about the consequences of the gold seizure um, on them. So they talk about themselves as everyday people who have everyday obligations to family. And in that way, they undercut this idea that they're somehow paying money to a large master. Um, who's controlling their labour in the colony. Their labour is for their family, the nuclear family. And of course, this is the ultimate organisational model for settler colonialism, the family. So in that way, they're really uh, cementing their connection to other Australians and they're kind of throwing those racial stereotypes back at the committee themselves.
0: So from all of what you've been saying, Sophie, a fascinating binary emerges, although binary makes it, a little bit too simple i think you've got a committee which is playing a kind of a double game it creates the the idea if you like of the innocent chinese miner trying to earn money for his family at the same time as it promotes a counter narrative of the exploited coolie which plays into all of those racial stereotypes and they graft that second image onto the first so that you end up with a slave master narrative. Now that was supposed to create fear about the reintroduction of racialized indentured labor, as you were saying it. We would call that, I think, playing the race card. Um, Is that a fair summary? Totally. So
1: they're trying to figure these Chinese um, as coolies beholden to rich men. And they're classically playing, as you say, a race card, trying to animate racial tensions over Chinese labor in their favor. You know, trying to reignite these old debates over labor, but they failed to do so. And this is, I think, a really interesting historical question. You know, why did this this, this cynical use of race fail as it did?
0: That was my next question. You've anticipated it. So, does it work? And you're saying no, it doesn't. How does it not? <laughs> how does it not work? I think that um, what's sort of interesting about this is
1: it shows a shift in the New South Wales population's relationship to government, but also their relationship to some of these racial stereotypes. Um, of course, Australian the Australian working class has for a long time been worried about the threat posed by um, Asian outsiders. But this was a step too far. This was um, an abuse of government power. And I think that trumped the racial stereotypes people may have may have had, or fears they may have had um, of Chinese workers. This was the government blatantly taking a large amount of money from people that they felt had rightfully and fairly earned
0: it. I've got one more question, or rather I've got a couple of questions along the same lines. I think you'd have to be a remarkably incurious person if you didn't find this story intrinsically fascinating. So I think there's reason enough actually for somebody like you to go and investigate this story because it is absolutely fascinating. But you're suggesting, I think, by implication that there is a bigger reason for the academic historian to investigate here. And I'm wondering if, for instance, some of what we might call the payoff doesn't lie in those unexpected moments that we've been discussing, those surprises like the one you've just described. For instance, how complex the European settlers' concerns about Cooley labour were. I really wasn't ready for that. You use a couple of really interesting terms. And I think here also there might be a larger reason so maybe I'll pose a specific question about that. We said we come back to memory. You use that fabulous term and I'm quoting again an archive of Chinese grievance. You mean that in a literal sense that there are actually documents because of this select committee that are an archive of grievance. Um, It conjures up all sorts of images in my mind. I'm an archivally based sort of historian so when you say the word archive I think of miles of shelves. But I've got a feeling you mean something more than that or that that's not quite what you mean. And I wonder if we're learning here something about history itself.
1: Thanks, I, I love that question, Nick. So I, um, I found this particular archival moment, if you like this, like, this scandal. First, I found it in the papers of, of an Australian historian called Shirley Fitzgerald, a Chinese Australian historian. And in the 1980s, when Australians were remembering the Chinese past in very new ways. This is the era of trying to include groups like the Chinese in the national story. Historians were going out trying to remember uh, a Chinese past that had been suppressed. So libraries around Australia, archives, had never actively collected Chinese voices. The um, State Library of New South Wales, for example, it actively collected the diaries of World War I veterans, for example, it paid money for them had a very, very tiny collection of documents on the Chinese. Um, So historians are going out and trying to find these stories for the first time. And this historian, Shirley Fitzgerald, she finds this select committee in the State Library of New South Wales. So I think it's sort of poignant that in a collection that's very um, tilted towards white settler memories, not Chinese memories, it's this unexpected archive of Chinese grievance, and by that I mean a Chinese response to all the stories we've, we've been told of mistreatment. So not a, not a story of Chinese victimhood or Chinese passivity in the face um, of anti-Chinese sentiment, but really a, a story, um, an archive of, of, of Chinese assertiveness in response to this, a Chinese voice, and yes, an archive of grievance about the treatment of the Chinese themselves.
0: What you're saying, in fact, is that by telling stories that were previously unknown, you create a more textured, collective persona for Chinese people. And by recovering their past, you give them a present. You make them more fully citizens of modern Australia. So an archive tells you who you are, is what you're suggesting. And that would be true of all of us, I think.
1: Mm. Who you're allowed to be, maybe.
0: that's, That's really interesting. One more question. It will be a final one. I've got lots and lots of them. But you write in this article, and I quote again, Chinese indentured labourers were believed to be plodding and submissive and content on a ration of rice and fish or garbage, and most importantly, docile. To our way of thinking and to the way we listen, that is pretty poisonous stuff. And my first reaction on reading it is that we're in the realm of racist stereotype. That's obvious. But if all you're saying is true, does it tell us something more complicated than that European settlers were a bunch of racists?
1: I love that um, question, Nick, because I'm so dissatisfied with that characterization of life in 1850s New South Wales. I think what it shows us is that often racial stereotypes, things that are confronting to us and should be confronting to us are pathways into different ways um, of seeing the world, their pathways into the way that power worked in societies and how the ways in which power seemingly powerless people um, confronted their options um, in the 1850s. So what I think they tell us a lot about is concerns over labour rights and concerns over labour conditions and concerns over the creeping power of big squatters, big landowners on a emerging settler population. So
0: a story that began as a racial dispute, as we said before, turns into a story about organised labour, class identity and attitudes to government on behalf of a larger population. Yes. Well, Sophie, that's the way it was in 1850s Sydney. Or was it? Well, we know more than we started at any rate. OK, to everybody who's listening, remember there's a link to Sophie's article on our website, uh, which I can tell everybody is a brilliant read and you've probably come to understand that from listening to us talk. I think we're done here. See you next time. Bye, everybody. How is It Really? is written, recorded and produced by the Department of History at the University of Sydney.